Welcome to the Innovate for Impact podcast. This podcast is for leaders in the social sector like you who want to make a difference. Each episode is packed with practical ideas on how you can be more innovative and create an even bigger social impact. We share our ideas on what you can do and also speak to leaders from the sector to share best practice. So let's get into it and let's talk impact. Welcome to the Innovate for Impact podcast. As usual, you've got Tracy Newman and I'm joined by my good friend, Dan Bentley. And today we're really happy to be joined with Dr. Lisa Griffiths, the CEO of Ozchild. So Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to have you with us. Pleasure. Lovely to be with you both. Excellent. Would you be willing just to sort of start off with telling us a little bit more about who you are and what it is that you do? Yeah, uh, as you uh, introduced me, uh, my name is Lisa and uh, I have the privileged role of being the Chief Executive Officer of an organisation called Ozchild. I've been the Chief Executive Officer there for about eight and a half years and Ozchild has a very rich and long history. It's uh, just ticked over its 171st year of operation. And our main purpose is to ensure that all children and young people are safe, secured, nurtured, and reach their full potential. Spent my life working on problems that impact people that are disadvantaged or experience vulnerability, majority of working with children, but also I've worked with adults with disabilities and uh, I've even spent some time working at the Country Fire Authority here in Victoria where I live. 171 years, that's a really well-established organisation. It must be interesting taking over as CEO when the organisation has been around for so long and so successful. Yes, it was. And I was actually the first female leader of the organisation, which was a terrific honour to have. And I was also joined by the first female president too. So we are kind of a, an all-female team at the helm of Ozchild, which is wonderful. Ozchild started off as a orphanage. It was called the Melbourne Orphanage Asylum back in 1851 when it opened its doors. And it actually was formed by a group of women whose husbands were, you know, very prominent in the church back in those days. And the women noticed that during those times, and it was the times where many people were migrating across from the United Kingdom and other parts of the world to settle in Australia and make their fortune and going off to the gold fields in Ballarat and Bendigo. Women were often left on their own with their children, and sometimes children were abandoned, and many children were found abandoned and living in terrible conditions in the kind of tent city of what was then known as South Melbourne. Those women of the church decided that they would lobby their husbands to raise funds so that they could do something to take care of those abandoned and neglected children. And that was the beginning of Ozchild, and it eventually became an act of parliament when uh, parliament gifted to Ozchild 300 hectares of land. And I often say that I really wish we still owned the 300 hectares of land in South Melbourne. We would be one of the wealthiest organisations. And they built the first orphanage on there. 
uh, in Victoria and uh, Ostrald is the oldest child welfare organisation in Victoria and the second oldest in Australia and throughout its history it's always supported vulnerable children and young people but thank goodness we've modernised today and we no longer of course are an orphanage. Uh, in fact we don't provide any type of sort of residential or institutionalised care. Today we have foster care and we provide kinship care and most importantly we provide a range of evidence-based interventions to surround children and ensure that they can effectively heal from any abuse neglect that they may have suffered or any trauma but also try and reunify children back to their family help them with their educational outcomes but also try and prevent them from entering care in the first place because the further you kind of get into sort of the care system the more challenging it is for young people. Yeah, it's interesting to see how the way that you provide support has changed so significantly and it's gone from being a very sort of institutionalised kind of model to now really supporting people to live their best life and, and working hard on having those interventions be as early as possible so that there's clearly more opportunity the earlier that you start that work. And you did sort of mention in there that you use these evidence-based approaches. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about what that looks like in practice. Yes, well, for myself in joining the organisation was eight and a half years ago, I had come out of sort of the public sector where I'd sort of pivoted a bit. And I mentioned I worked at the Country Fire Authority and uh, I'd sort of changed tact. And when I came back into this sector, I was really quite troubled by the statistics. There was almost 50,000 children living in out-of-home care, so not living with their family across Australia. And the numbers in Victoria in particular were growing really, really quickly. And there was a huge over-representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people that were represented in that data. So I started to ask the questions within my own organisation as to how do we know what we're delivering to these children and young people when they're removed from their families is working? And is there anything we can do to prevent them being removed in the first place or, you know, intervene much earlier? And the sort of responses I got was, well, you know, we don't really know the answer to that. You know, we just do really good quality work and we provide as much support as we can to carers to make sure that they look after children. And, you know, we are funded by the government to deliver X amount of hours of service. And when I sort of analysed that, everything was sort of focused on hours of service or a placement and nothing was really focused on outcomes and how we could measure the change or the impact that that would have on that young person's life. And when I kind of looked around to see what evidence there was to sort of see whether these, you know, if a child's placed in foster care or a family gets uh, 60 hours of some type of caseworker involved in their lives, we had very, very poor ways of kind of determining whether that uh, was actually making a difference. We didn't even have sort of program logics in place. So I started the journey of introducing the conversation about evidence into the organisation, which was a very new conversation and actually quite a new conversation to the sector at large. And when I questioned more about where the kind of biggest problem areas were within the Victorian context, there was not only large overrepresentation of our First Nations children, but also there were large numbers of children under the age of 12 
which were kind of growing up in residential care. Now, residential care still has a place in the system and residential care today is not like an orphanage. It is, you know, homes, they are houses, but they are still staffed by professional, but uh, staff. So there's, you know, there's not sort of like a home-like environment that's very hard to sort of recreate. But when you are a child that's under the age of 12 growing up in that kind of environment, and sometimes you can be there for the rest of your childhood, it really kind of bothered me that children were kind of growing up and not experiencing a real childhood where they were in a family experiencing what all other children experience. And the United Nations Charter on the Rights of the Child really does say that children do have a right to grow up with family. So I did a bit of research in trying to understand where anywhere in the world uh, they had kind of tackled the problem of reducing number of children coming into the out-of-home care system and also particularly, you know, preventing children uh, being removed and stepping younger kids out of that residential care end so that they could grow up within families. And my research sort of took me to New York, which seems like a long ways away from Australia. But in New York, back in the 90s, they had a huge crack epidemic. And this crack epidemic saw lots and lots of children being removed from their families and placed into their equivalent of our system. And at one point, uh, they had 50,000 children in out-of-home care in the state of New York, in the five boroughs. And just for context, you know, Victoria's got a population of sort of 6.8 million now people who live there. And the five boroughs of New York has a population of 18 million. And if you took in the whole of New York State, that sort of explodes to 28 million. So 18 million is a lot bigger than Victoria. And 50,000 is a really, really large number. But what happened over years is they really sort of came together with the sector, the government and the sector came together in the court system and said, this is just ridiculous. We really need to do something about this. So they kind of had a bit of a competition where they went out to market to ask for the best evidence about what could tackle the challenges that were faced within that system. And they came up with, at the time, 11 programs that had done some randomized control trials that had been really sort of successful at tackling some of the entrenched problems of working with families that experienced, of course, drug and alcohol use, uh, aka the, the crack epidemic, but also in working with entrenched poverty, working with family violence issues, alongside working with children that had experienced complex trauma, having been removed from families, uh, intergenerational abuse, all sorts of very similar things that we see uh, in the Australian system here. And if we jump to sort of the future when they, you know, explored about testing and, and trialling some of these models, uh, we saw uh, that the number of children entering out-of-home care and the number of children in out-of-home care started to come down and come down and come down right through to a few years ago where that number was at 7,800, so 7,800, which is actually lower than the number today here in Victoria. So currently in Victoria, yeah, there's about um, 9,500 children in out-of-home care and in the state, those five boroughs of New York, 
population 80 million, there's only 7,800. Just goes to show that when the entire system works together, when you've got all of the different stakeholders involved and working together, you can really have a significant impact, even on very difficult and complex issues. Absolutely, Tracy. And, you know, child protection systems are, you know, it's a system and there are many actors in that system and everybody has a part to play. So the removal rates of children often we like to blame sort of child protection, but, you know, the blame is not at the feet of of child protection. They're extremely professional practitioners that deeply care. But the system we've kind of created, not just here in Australia, but in many systems around the world, has kind of been like a child rescue system where we want to sort of rescue children from what seems to be very desperate sets of circumstances and often are desperate sets of circumstances. But unless you put in the resources, the work to sort of help reorientate and repurpose and assist those families that are experiencing those really difficult circumstances, such as in the example of New York, you know, a crack epidemic, high rates of family violence, then they needed to have really appropriate interventions and supports to work with those families to overcome those challenges. Because there are very few families that actually want to lose their children. In fact, women who do lose their children experience the most immense guilt and rarely get over it. And where they have had children reunified, they are so grateful for the opportunity to have had change created in their lives. So systems kind of need to work together and it takes a multitude of areas and it does take child protection, it does take professional agencies like Auschild and many other organisations that know how to work with very specific cohorts and have expertise in understanding the problems that they are trying to work on and solve. More often than not, organisations try and solve a myriad of problems all at once And what research will say is it's better to sort of focus on the ones that are getting in the way of success. So you kind of focus on two or three of the key components. And that probably was a bit of the secret of the success. In the New York example, they really did focus in on providing evidence-based models that really targeted the areas of greatest concern that were really getting in the way of success. And what families found is, is they could go through treatment really quite quickly. We see a lot of families that are known as kind of recidivists, where they keep popping back up into the system continuously. And part of the issue with that is, is that they kind of get a little bit of this and a little bit of that. They get referred here or referred there to deal with one little thing or another. Instead of paying attention to the data, paying attention to the evidence, matching then to the greatest problem presenting and really working in a concentrated way on overcoming that as opposed to trying to sort of get a few kind of quick wins and your intervention time is quite contensed and intensive and with most uh, families that are really really challenged in this way they need a kind of different approach they don't really want to kind of come to a center and come in and say oh I've got a problem I need your help Uh, These are families that often are so in crisis that they can't kind of barely get to the sort of the front door. 
So the practitioners that work with these families um, have to have incredible training in how to engage and motivate families that are at this point of crisis so that they can really work with them. The evidence-based programs uh, have kind of a methodology of really teaching practitioners and how to work in that way, and that enhances the, the likelihood of success. If you're loving what you're hearing on our podcast, you should join us for one of our live events where we cover how you can build a more innovative and impactful organization. We also have our very popular Co-Design for Impact Masterclass, where I'll teach you how to run your own co-design projects and how to set them up for success. Spots are limited, so grab your ticket to this and our other events at impactoconsulting.com.au slash events. that old approach of you know it's like the old 80 20 rule you know <laughs> focus on the 20 percent that has the greatest impact over what's getting in the way of people being successful and then you can look for those other things in the periphery afterwards but if you're really singular in your focus around like this is the biggest issue we'll solve this and then you can kind of work your way through the list from there. I know that you mentioned that you're working with families that are in crisis and using those sort of evidence base. I'm interested to know how you sort of use like a, a strengths-based approach when you're working with those families or you also mentioned that there's sort of that idea of, you know, rescuing children. Well, if that's not what we're doing, well, what is it that replaces that? Well, what replaces that is probably really reorientating the system to move to that strength-based approach, Tracy, and really using what I would, you know, term evidence-based decision-making so that everybody can kind of be very clear on the sort of roles and responsibilities that they have and using data and evidence to really inform the types of interventions and ways of working that are going to create success. We've learned a lot in the last couple of years during the pandemic, and we've all become kind of really mini experts in understanding COVID and, you know, our numbers and randomized control trials. And we were all waiting for many, many, many months to see the development of vaccines, but we didn't want a vaccine until we knew it had been trialed and tested and kind of evaluated and knew it wouldn't do us any harm. Whereas in kind of human services, we sort of do a lot of sort of trialing and testing, but uh, we don't necessarily sort of stand back and test whether those things are going to make any difference or whether they are actually going to do any harm. So one of the things that's really kind of important in any role, but particularly in leadership roles, is that we use multiple sort of sources of evidence to sort of try and understand best ways to sort of tackle these really entrenched kind of challenges that families experience. And that requires us when we look at multiple sources of evidence to really sort of slow down our thinking. There's a very famous book, you know, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, which is by the Nobel Peace Prize winner, Daniel Kahneman. And he sorts of talks about, you know, how our brains, you know, really uh, wired to sort of get to a, a solution very quickly. We're very good at sort of solutioneering, particularly if we're practicing something all the time, it comes sort of second nature to us. So we sort of like to sort of say, this is what you need, as opposed to standing back and asking a simple question, what's the problem we're sort of trying to solve? 
sometimes we need to collect a lot of data to sort of understand what that problem is and the types of places that you know it's easy to sort of access data from is you know talking to obviously clients uh, talking to children if you're working with children and their families uh, your own practitioner wisdom if you're a practitioner your organizational data the sector data, there's, um, you know, lots and lots of data available in most jurisdictions around Australia and nationally as well. And then there's the sort of uh, the scary bit, which is looking at the research. And more often than not, people sort of defer to what research they understand. So people are kind of very happy and comfortable with evaluations and even with surveys and you know, pre-tests and post-tests, but if it's sort of scientific data, data that's sort of been rigorously tested, sort of a randomized kind of control trial or something similar, that sort of scares a lot of people. And I always encourage people to sort of don't be too scared of the evidence and you don't necessarily need to know how to read a scientific report other people can do that for you. And there are a myriad now of clearing houses and websites that have done the hard work of sort of bringing all the evidence together around different types of interventions to make it sort of easier for you to sort of think, if I think this is the problem that I'm trying to solve, and I want to know what the research says about this problem. If you go to Google Scholar, then you're only really going to get sort of access to sort of scientific and research data. And one of the words, which is a really good word to remember, is a systematic literature review or an SLR or a systematic review. And if you're looking for interventions that assist with uh, cocaine use, then you type that in, you type in systematic review. And Google Scholar will kind of come back to you with any sort of research that's been systematically reviewed. So not just looking at one study, but multiple studies and sharing what the effect size or sizes were of that intervention. In the child welfare sector as well, in Australia, we've got clearing houses. In the UK, they've got uh, the evidence store for what works for children in social care. In the US, they've got the California Clearinghouse for Child Welfare. These are all uh, organisations that have kind of done the hard work for us now. And we can kind of look up interventions there and see if they're working with cohorts uh, that are similar to what we maybe are presented with. And in the Australian context and in child welfare, you know, the sort of rescue mentality, the reason we are in the rescue mentality is because we're always in sort of the crisis end. And if we sort of pivot the system to say, we really need to think about who is good at what. And the statutory system absolutely has a role in forensically looking at the challenges that they're confronted with, with children that experience abuse and neglect. But they too, in that forensic analysis, could use some of the evidence-based decision-making to sort of say, well, what's going to work best for this family situation in this child is removal the thing I need to do and if it is then more often what not what happens now is a child's removed they're kind of put in a sort of a holding pattern they might go into foster care they might go into kinship care or at worst they might go into residential care and the family's kind of put under the microscope to then be told well you'll need to do xyz and appear at court in a few days time to see what kind of order we're going to make for 
whether you get visitation for your child or what the plan's going to be for the next sort of few days, weeks or months and sometimes years. If we went away from the sort of rescue mentality and thought, well, we really do need to provide the best intervention to support not just the child, but the family concurrently, then we should be working with that family from the day that we make a decision. And if that decision's removal for safety, that's fine. But what do we need to do for that family's safety in being able to continue the connection to that child, particularly if it's an Aboriginal child, the cultural connection is of utmost importance. And what are the sorts of skills and interventions required to hold that child and that family at the same time so we minimise the impact on both sides? And right now we really don't do that. We sort of fix, we deal with one issue. There's a child that needs a removal and the family then kind of gets put into limbo. And if the family does get seen a bit earlier, which... It's really, really positive if they do. And some of the evidence-based programs that we're now running in Australia and here in Victoria, Austral runs a program called Functional Family Therapy Child Welfare. We introduced it about four or five years ago. And now it's great that a number of other organisations, both in Victoria and New South Wales and Queensland and in the ACT are also running these programs because of the success of them. In one area here in Victoria, there's been 274 families that have been through that intervention that we've tracked over three years, and 93% of them have still got their children living with them safely at home, even though at the start of the intervention, they had multiple reports of abuse and neglect and were flagged for removal. That's a great result. What sort of rate would you expect on a cohort like that? without that kind of intervention of being able to successfully keep that family together? In the studies that were done in the US on that same model, because we actually brought that model across from the US, when they compared business as usual, as in, so you just got what you kind of was available versus um, the intervention, then the rate drops uh, as low as 24%. And you get the recidivist kind of behaviours happening where the families may sort of achieve an outcome for a short period of time. But in the New York study, three years post-intervention, those numbers held. Now, they weren't as high as the ones that I mentioned, 93%. They were only actually 68% in the study that came out of New York. So three years post-intervention, 68% of families still had their children intact. But those that were business as usual, who didn't receive the intervention, but did receive some type of intervention, yeah, that was only 24% and they kept coming back into the system. Lisa, when people are out there you know, doing similar work to what you did where they're finding things that are working in other environments and then sort of bringing them to their environment, is there additional work that needs to be done to kind of localise those interventions as well? Absolutely, Dan, yes. You know, Australia's got its own you know, well, Australia is very multidimensional anyway, so there will always be the local context that you have to consider. And the researchers behind these models, they don't really like us practitioners to sort of talk about adapting, playing around with the research, but they do know that you have to customise them to the local context. And probably one of the most important things uh, in the Australian context is 
talking to the local people, and particularly if you're going to work with our First Nations people, talking to local elders and introducing the models and the concepts and the sort of the ways of working that are involved. And Tracy mentioned earlier, you know, about working in a strength-based way. And most of these models are very strength-based in their underpinnings, their family therapy models, and they really look for the uniqueness of our families and the whole ecosystem. So they're inclusive of everybody. They're not exclusive and they really don't work on an individual level. They work at that sort of ecosystem around the family. So to introduce them uh, in the Australian context, we've done multiple consultations in different communities with all kind of key stakeholders to introduce them to the model, ask questions about the model, ask questions about the theory, ask questions of what are the sort of work that the practitioners would be doing, as well as introducing them to, in some different places in Australia, local elders. And in one case where local elders actually were inviting us in to sort of say, please come talk to us, because we've heard about these models and Will they help with our particular situation because we don't want our children removed anymore? So it is very important to assimilate them to the culture. But probably one of the biggest barriers to introducing anything new, but if you're bringing in an American model to Australia, there's going to, that adds a whole other barrier in of itself. But often the biggest barrier, believe it or not, is the system. Because the system has kind of got its ways of working and its processes and people have roles. And sometimes when something new comes into the system, somebody might be in a role and they think, oh, no, that can't work that way. They become a barrier. Uh, So you've got to do a lot of stakeholder engagement and really keep working with individuals in the system to say, That may be how we used to do it, but with this model to be successful, we really need to have a little bit more flexibility on how you refer families, for example. In the Australian Capital Territory, the local Aboriginal Community Control Organisation, there's an incredible organisation called Guggenghulan. And when they consulted with their families and their elders about bringing this model into that jurisdiction, they said, you know, our families would like the opportunity to refer themselves and we would like to work with the families first. We don't want the child protection authorities being the only referrer because that brings stigma to the family. It brings shame to the family and it's really scary for families, particularly if you're from an Aboriginal culture where, you know, with the years and years and years and stolen generations and the atrocities that that we have done, to have child protection and come in and say you must go and do, you know, to this program is not going to really set the family up for success. So the referral pathways there had to be completely reorientated, which meant that the government had to say, you know, we will listen and we will change our processes. And that was a huge thing but they knew it was really important to set that model up for success. So understanding the barriers, understanding the local context, appreciating our local cultures and customs and being very humble in your approach is critical to the success of introducing any change. That's such a great story. Thank you for sharing that. I think there's something in there that even people who aren't working in the child protection system can see that the benefits of that consultation and those conversations and and really taking people on that change journey with you really does make a difference. Thank you.
Yeah, so Lisa, if you could just tell us a little bit about as well, what are some of the different types of evidence that people can use in their decision-making? So we always encourage multiple sources of evidence. And there was a report released by the Global Commission on Evidence uh, earlier this year who did a great piece of work around COVID and what was going to help with the societal challenges in moving forward and what was the advice for policymakers and what was the advice for governments and what was the advice for citizens like uh, the three of us. And they sort of said that in those multiple sources of evidence, you can have data analytics, you can have modeling, you know, these are all kind of buzzwords today. You can have evaluations, you can have behavioral research, you know, sort of that qualitative type stuff. You can have qualitative insights where you've kind of gone out and spoken to people, focus groups. Uh, you could also have evidence synthesis. I mentioned earlier about if you go into Google Scholar and you put systematic review in there, that will come up with kind of a synthesis of the research around the problem that you're looking at. You can also have today cost-effective analysis, you know, return and investment reports. And, you know, lots of people have put out guidelines, et cetera. So there are different types of evidence that can help inform your decision making. I kind of simplify that sort of in that whatever evidence you're looking at, one of the most important criteria is that you critically appraise it. So when you do have, let's say, an evaluation of a program, really pay attention to, you know, how many people did it involve? Was it, you know, four or five or was it 400? Because context matters in the sort of the size and the shape. If you are going to sort of look at research, you really want to look at something called like an effect size. Uh, if the effect is just 0.1, that's really not very large at all. But if it's 0.9, then it's really, really, really quite large. And you can familiarize yourself with some of kind of the important words that really can inform yourself to make you kind of a more effective reviewer. So confidence intervals, the higher the confidence interval, the more likely that the research is going to be able to be replicated and be successful. But as I said earlier, on that sort of scientific kind of research you don't have to do all the hard work yourself. You can kind of look at some of the clearing houses. But what you will have access to if you're a practitioner is you've got your own professional wisdom. But one of the cautionary things to pay attention to is your own cognitive bias. We really do sometimes get trapped in, you know, information processing. We want to get to a quick result. So we often kind of do the same thing over and over. It's a bit of the definition of insanity, but we think if we do it again, we'll get a better result. So if something hasn't really been working with a client, maybe stand back and get somebody to sort of critically review with you why you think that is and have a look at their data within the organization because there'll be a bunch of data that you'd have access to. And, you know, pay attention to the sector data that's going on as well. In a management sort of sense, if your organization's got a turnover rate of 50%, ask the question, well, is that a problem? Have a look at what the sector data says. Well, if the sector data says it's only 20%, then it's a problem. But if the sector data says the turnover rate's 70%, then maybe it's not a problem. So validate some of the metrics you have to 
but critically appraising and standing back and really pausing and looking at that data it's really important for us all to make better decisions because at the end of the day these are human beings that we're dealing with and our sector we are deeply caring and really really want to have such a powerful impact and I see the hardest work and I'm in awe of the people that I have the privilege with working with yet sometimes we spend the least amount of time in working out what's going to be the most effective thing (laughs) to be doing with the families and the children we work with whereas if the three of us had a problem, a medical problem, we went to the doctor and, you know, we had a condition with our elbow and we think, oh, is it tennis elbow? And we go and share the condition with the doctor. The doctor said, actually, I I don't have any treatment for tennis elbow today, but I do have lots of time that I can give you. And I do have a poultice here, which I've used before for warts. And I think we'll try it in your elbow today you're going to be terribly dissatisfied with that and, you know, and it's really not going to make much difference to your elbow, but gee, you had a good time together. I'm jesting, but the comparison is, is that doctors, you know, spend years studying to ensure that, and they keep themselves up to date on the latest research to make sure that they can really work on the problem that you present with that day. And it should be no different for clients even though they've got some really complex issues going on, there will be something that they're presenting with that day that uh, if you do stand back and spend a bit of time on that evidence and unpacking it and doing that critical appraisal around those multiple sources, including listening to them and your fellow practitioners and that scientific data and the sector data, then you're going to get a much improved chance at a better outcome. Yeah, I really love that you've made sure that you include the listening to the people involved part in that because I think sometimes when people are talking about evidence-based approaches, they're really only considering, well, what does the scientific data say, not necessarily considering all of those angles. And I think that's a really great and important piece to consider because the people who are living an experience have a lot of value and we want to make sure that we really are listening to them and helping them to tell us what they need as well. Absolutely, Tracy. The wisdom of the person that's going to receive whatever you're offering cannot be underestimated, be it a child or a family member, your client or your consumer. Engaging them in a meaningful way and understanding their journey and their perspective is just such a rich insight and can often save you a lot of time as well because we might have a fandangled thing that we think is going to work and this is particularly true with young people and I've learned so much in listening to some incredible stories from young people that have experienced out-of-home care for example and what really makes the difference for them and young people you know will say things like you know I was removed from my family, but I wasn't ever explained as to why I was removed. And I was removed from my family and I never really had anybody that would help me continue a relationship with my mum, which was really, really important to me. And while I knew I needed to be removed because I wasn't safe, I still wanted mum to know that I loved her. And if we'd have paid attention and sort of gone, oh, that's really important, Of course, we can let mum know that, even though mum might not be capable right now of looking after you, 
it still would be really important for that young person to maintain that sort of connection. So we think we're doing the right thing, you know, that rescue. Yep, we're going to, but there's all this other stuff surrounding it that we have to pay attention to, not just that one element at that point of time, which is often at the crisis point when we slow down and we think about all of the things that we need to pay attention to and we look at that evidence-based decision-making, then the likelihood of a better outcome goes up exponentially. I think we've covered all of the things that we really wanted to speak with you today, Lisa. For anybody who is listening to this and who is really, you know, perhaps working as part of the system and they want to do more, you've given them some really great tips in terms of how to do the research, but are there any sort of stakeholder engagement groups that you're part of or ways that people can start to work across the system? Well, in terms of evidence-based decision-making, there's a course that the Centre for Excellence in Child and Family Welfare in Victoria, which is the peak body for family welfare, put on a couple of times a year. I'm a teacher with, I'm more of the teaching assistant, if I'm honest, with a global kind of organisation. So if people are interested in evidence-based decision-making, there are courses available that they can undertake. In terms of sector reform, in each jurisdiction, yeah, there are groups. They're normally put on by government. So in Victoria, there's multiple groups and most people kind of in the sector, particularly sector leaders, are quite aware of those connections in those groups. But all the sort of peak bodies around Australia have an active interest in child protection reform. And, you know, there's been, and I think you came across my article, Tracy, but there's been a huge amount of commentary in this space for a long time. But this year in particular, there was an expose on the ABC of, because there's lots of practitioners that left the child protection sector because they don't like what they see. And, you know, they are removing children and they're burnt out. They have high case loads and they're often quite young and they're exceptional people, but they're working in a system that really does need to be overhauled. And it's not going to be solved just by government. It does require the non-government sector, the community service sector, as well as the research sort of partners that kind of bring that evidence to the table to work really collaboratively to sort of agree on another way of working. And in South Australia, Professor Fiona Arney and the colleagues at the Australian Institute of Child Protection Studies have done a huge amount of work and are really speaking up as well about the lack of shift of child protection systems across Australia. Right. Thank you. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. I feel like I understand a whole lot more about the need of that evidence-based decision-making, but really the value in taking that step back and considering what you're looking at from a multiple range of perspectives. So thank you very much. I've really enjoyed your time and our conversation today. Oh, I really appreciate your time, Tracy, and uh, your interest in, the, in our sector and you too, Dan really, really do appreciate that you would shine a light on uh, the, the great work that this sector does. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Innovate for Impact podcast. Any links to what we spoke about today will be posted in the show notes. If you'd like to know more about social innovation, visit our website where we have a heap of tools to help you on your way. Visit impactoconsulting.com.au. Thanks for listening. Now go out there and make an impact.